1: And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to emergency management, resilience, business continuity, disaster planning, and anything that can be related to those subjects. As always, if there is a subject or topic you'd like us to talk about on the show, please feel free to go to the Preparing for the Unexpected webpage on the Voice America site. There is a button You can send me an email with your ideas, questions, or a request to be on the show, and uh, we'll see about getting someone on to talk about your topic or start making arrangements and get you to come on the show and talk about what you want. Um, Of course, if there are any uh, adverts or any sponsorships you'd like to put in place or talk about a product or service you have, please feel free Get in touch with me as well. We have some things for you uh, in that respect. Uh, Using the same method, send me an email from the uh, Voice America page. Today's show is brought to us uh, by the people at Stone Road and their uh, product, boastassessment.com. Check it out, and uh, you can manage and see your progress of your own uh, programs. It's like a uh, self-monitoring, self-status report, so to speak, uh, application you can use. And um, I'm going to actually be in uh, Phoenix again this year. Uh, longtime listeners will know that uh, we did a live broadcast last year. And i strongly probably going to do that. It's about 90% uh, that we'll be doing another live broadcast from Phoenix this year at the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, September 29th to October 2nd. And some of you may remember that I attended a Teams Conference, the International Emergency Management Society Conference in Manila uh, last November, and uh, their next conference this year is November 12th to 15th in Seoul, Korea. So I'm probably going to be attending that one as well. Speaking of Teams and the Manila Conference, there were a lot of great speakers there, and I'm very lucky to have one of those presenters here today. Their subject um, really uh, intrigued me. I I thought it was fantastic when they presented their paper and I knew, oh, I've got to reach out and I've got to get this guy uh, on the show to talk about this. He talked about um, whether it was possible to predict earthquakes. I'm putting that in a nutshell, of course, um, and I'll let him explain it more. And uh, so I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Dimitar Ozanov. Hopefully I'm saying your name right. But welcome to the show, uh, Dimitar.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: How are you today? How is the weather?
2: Uh, Weather is good. We are plus um, range of temperature, so we're back to normal business. So um, so we need to catch up with many things we just put on hold for the last week.
1: For anyone who's uh, not aware of that, that's because of uh, what we had over here in Canada and uh, the US the polar vortex. Where some areas were getting minus forty degrees, colder than Antarctica. <laughs> so, Dimitar, um, before we get started into your the paper you presented in Manila, can you give our listeners a little bit of history on yourself? You know um, how you got into this industry and what you're doing now.
2: Um, I'm re- recently um, a professor at uh, Chapman University in um, Orange, California. Uh, I work in Center for Earth Observation and Space Research. Um, as a background, I am a geophysicist. Um, and I was trained um, in Russia uh, in the Academy of Sciences, I got a PhD. Then um, I started working in uh, early 2000 in NASA Goddard in Greenbelt, Maryland, and that time I. Try to use the new satellites from NASA to study new phenomena, uh, and we discover that the satellite can see some unique signatures related to dynamics of earthquakes. So, uh, and then I joined the 2009 Japan in 2009, Chapman University, California. So I am trying to use another approach on earthquake hazards from space, and that's uh, what I uh, continue doing for the last ten years.
1: Oh, well, welcome to the show. I appreciate having you here and spending your time with us. I, was, I know you've mentioned that uh, you, know, you were working on the earthquakes and that was your paper that you presented in Manila. Um, but I was wondering, can you kind of give us a bit, you know, we do have global listeners and we've got people literally um, who of different levels of experience and work in different areas. Can you kind of tell us, though, what an earthquake really is? Because I, I only found out recently that there were two kinds.
2: Okay. Um, basically, uh, we can uh, imagine um, earthquakes like they seem like a bomb detonation under the ground. So they uh, radiate energy waves. We're turning away uh, from the epicenter, which named uh, the location of uh, when this process has been developed. And basically, uh, we understand earthquakes as a result of two blocks moving past um, each other on the fault system. Uh, but this is happening on the ground surface. And the energy waves being been radiated uh, from every point uh, on that surface. So earthquakes typically start with the rupture event uh, uh, and start the slippage over the fault. So we are measuring earthquakes with magnitude, which means the energy release. And that means how much uh, of the fault slips. And uh, that is the challenge to understand um, the the source of uh, the mechanism of earthquake, of course, but science has been developed and advanced so much the last few years. So basically, um, Earthquakes can produce a lot of damages um, and uh, basically uh, produce a ground shaking with a grout rupture, uh, landslides, uh, tsunamis, and liquefaction, which means the soil being destructed. And buildings built on that kind of soil actually can be uh, fallen uh, after the earthquake. Um, and uh, fires also are um, one of the most single uh, important secondary effects of earthquakes, and especially those earthquakes were happening on the ground. Um, so, and um, these are the just basic description of earthquakes. So we know from the news mostly because of tsunami, but also vulcan- um, volcano eruption are uh, one of the secondary effects of tsunami, and we had this uh, last year. In uh, end of September in um, Indonesia, when we had um, earthquake, uh, unexpected uh, tsunami following, and then uh, volcano eruption just happened to be not too, too far from the epicenter.
1: Now, I just I read a little while ago. <clears throat> excuse me. There were two kinds of earthquakes: one where plates are rubbing against each other, and one where they're kind of folding over each other or underneath each other. Is that true?
2: Yeah, this uh, this uh, this we name a mechanism of earthquakes. Actually, seismologists uh, are pretty um, clear about that. So we have uh, strike slip uh, kind of earthquakes, which, um, uh, for example, most of the earthquakes in California um, over the San Andreas fault uh, are strike slip type of earthquakes. Also, we have a normal truss or inverse um, uh, fault mechanism. Uh, which are the most uh, earthquakes uh, with magnitude 8, which are capable to produce tsunami because you have uh, quite a large uh, volume of mass uh, following each other. So that's which can produce quite a tsunami. And generally speaking, this is the mechanism. As a genesis of earthquakes, we have um, uh, interplate and... um, Um, uh, earthquakes which are very rare and normally earthquakes happening over the plate boundaries but some earthquakes and most recently in Nepal and in India they're interplate which means they're the middle of the plates and these are more difficult to observe and to detect Uh, but most of the earthquakes are happening um, on the kind of coastal kind of earthquakes and they're happening around the plates a boundary because usually when the plates move each other they start producing
1: earthquakes. I I kinda have a question now. Those earthquakes that occur in the middle of a plate, how are they occurring if all the earthquakes that you know we pay attention to are, are along the plates? You know, I, I know California obviously you know, in Japan and New Zealand, you know, there's earthquake plans in place. But someplace where I am, you know, in the middle of the Canadian Shield, we don't have earthquake plans, but yet we still feel uh, kind of earthquakes. So what what causes those in the middle of a plate?
2: Um, we have this kind of area of concern. In the United States, it's the San Madrid zone um, around Mississippi, which actually um, had produced before. um very strong earthquakes in Canada also it's possible um, the problem with these earthquakes uh, they occur not very frequently so it's difficult to do monitoring and observation um, uh, but they um, one of the phenomena which is happening in geophysics and seismology um, because um, of usually um, earthquakes have a deep origins they connected with the mantle, and mm-hmm. this um, deep connection cannot be seen on the surface, and even in the middle of the plate, ooh, Earth can be unpredictable, And um, but in terms of Asia, when we have seen earthquakes for the last 10 years in um, Pakistan and in Nepal, um, the quite clear movement of the plates uh, far from the area, and uh, because of the Himalayan mountains, um, they have uh, quite um, um, strong movement uh, in centimeters detected by GPS, and that leads for distribution of the stress inside the plate, and because of the heavy mountains, it's happening that this load actually can be released time to time. So we see more frequently release an interplated earthquake in Asia mm. than in Americas, but that's still happening and will happen. So that's how the world works, basically. So we cannot stop these kind of things, but we can learn and we can uh, study um, much more accurately.
1: So re- even though I know myself in the middle of Canadian SHIELD, you know, we don't worry too much about earthquakes, it's still really a something I should consider you know, it just, it's unpredictable, but the, the impacts would probably be a little bit different than, you know, uh, along the plates, right?
2: Yes, um, that's the thing. Uh, that's why we have a global seismic network, uh, which giving the, the um, uh, precise location for earthquakes, there is quite a me- methodology for us studying the probabilities of a long period of time. We have the, Digital uh, record of we have earthquake catalogs around the world and now it's with this technology which you have today it's very uh, we can have this information instantaneously on your mobile phone so it's not difficult um, to be aware of what is happening so uh, but uh, again uh, earthquakes are one of the disasters right now and there is now climate change became number one now awareness but we still have issue we don't able to forecast precisely earthquakes so we're still moving this forward but um yeah you you have to where where you live um mm-hmm. what's the area uh, around you so and that's what that's what we're talking about today so we like to give more uh, information about these events and there is uh, quite uh, internet sites that uh, you can learn what is the seismicity of your area when you leave, and what we can do in terms of earthquake.
1: Well, actually, and I want to talk about that on the next in our second segment because that's where I want to talk about the, the key focus of your paper. It was that there now is some technology out there that can help us, right?
2: Yes, we can,
0: we can talk about this.
1: Yes. So I'm going to end here because I don't want to cut once we start talking about um, the the technology and the the key focus of your paper. I don't want to get interrupted or sidetracked. So I'm going to end our first segment right here. We are talking today with Dr. Dimitar Ozanov and we're talking about earthquakes and their predictability. And we'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Every business wants to succeed. Every individual wants to succeed. But with an ever-changing economy, how can you manage to keep things doing so well, even in times of instability? You can. Tune in to Thriving in Uncertainty with host Meredith Elliott Powell. Meredith and her guest experts have the answers you need to keep you ahead of the changing game in business. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Accept the challenge to succeed.
5: Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills practical actionable leadership insights are the focus of leadership development news hosted each monday at 9 a.m pacific noon eastern by kathy greenberg and relly nadler on the voice america business channel doctors greenberg and nadler who coach global leaders on how to be most effective will share their insights and contacts the path to leadership excellence begins here
6: get a unique and playful insider's take on the biggest stories in tech media and entertainment Join Laurie H. Schwartz, well-known technology catalyst, comedian, and geek girl, as she and leading experts in the media and content business dive into the biggest stories in technology trends, consumer behaviors, and its impact on Hollywood. If you're looking to respond to the tech-fueled changes in the marketplace, then tune in to The Tech Cat Show, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business Channel.
0: The Voice America Live Events channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events You're listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fulick. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's info at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Dr. Dimitar Ozanov, and we are talking about earthquakes and their predictability. Uh, Dimitar, in our first segment, uh, just near the end, you started talking about um, that there are some technologies out there that can help us now with um, uh, predictions and you know some of the uh, scientific uh, work that you're you're doing. And uh, in your paper also, you give a great example about a project or program um, you know that you call uh, Amadeus. So I'm wondering, can you, uh, use the segment to talk about some of this technology and you know the Amadeus project.
2: Yes, um, thank you for that. Uh, yes, uh, uh, during the meeting we presented the, the Amadeus, basically it's abbreviation of multi-sensor um, web system for pre earthquake signal detection utilization and alerts. It's a complex title but basically it's a framework Um, which we design it, Um, and this framework has scientific component, um, observational component, technology, and decision-making. This is in the research phase, so it's still in discovery phase. Uh, We are trying to bring all um, puzzles, I mean, to make the puzzle, I mean, to bring all points together. Uh, But there is a... um, reason to do that, and one of the reasons is because I I'm a geophysicist, which is supposed to work also with satellite data, and we found that um, with Earth observation satellites, there is no actually um, only one satellite can really really help for the earthquakes. There are quite many satellites. They measure different parameters, and also they also ground measurements, which can help understand what's happening before and after the earthquake. So what we decided is just following the, the, the history of the science of weather forecasts, we assemble all kinds of measurements together and we create some kind of virtual um, satellite which uh taking data from one second third um, all the different areas, different physical parameters and we are trying to uh, develop um observational network. We name it a sensor web. Um, and this sensor web is measuring not everything, but just specific parameters. So let me explain what is this. So um, let, there is quite a history. Um, um, we published last year two books, and there is a quite a historical background that over the last 50, 60 years, uh, many scientists around the world uh, just measure Phenomena before earthquakes. Um, they're related to atmospheric, electrical, magnetic phenomena. It's not consistent. Some places happening, some places not happening. So we understood, we collect all the data. We're trying as a physicist to understand what this, this, the, the science be, behind And um, I work with Professor Pulinets from Russia, who has been doing this for the last 20 years. So we um, published a paper a few years back. When we um, upgraded this concept, uh, the concept is lithosphere atmosphere, ionosphere coupling. The idea is before large earthquakes, there are lots of um, unusual phenomena because of uh, water and gas from Earth coming up to the surface. And these gases are usually um, um, radon, carbon dioxide, and um, methane, which uh, makes quite... Disturbing the low atmosphere, they create a chain of physical reactions uh, which produce thermal heat and also changing the conductivity properties, which uh, could be seen from satellite point of view. So that's at the point. The satellites help us to measure and get information for something we can we cannot do on the ground. So they help us to. Um, um, really, really um, detect the, the signal from the noise. So that's the, the major the major work. We did it. And based on this approach, uh, we develop specific measurements. We use gas measurements on the ground. We use satellite thermal measurements with a GPS uh, observation uh, of ionosphere. And all collected together, we are able to uh, basically connect, uh, create uh, like a Google uh, device uh, in uh, collecting the data and starting analyzing. So that is the, the concept of Amadeus. And the, the, the thing we understood that uh, there is uh, quite uh, advantage to integrate satellite and ground data together because we get a better understanding of the phenomena because some uh, phenomena are not observable in atmosphere with satellites. Some phenomena are not observable on the ground. So connected all satellites, all data sources together, we have a full coverage. That actually helped us to achieve something we uh, named pre-earthquake anomalies. So what we have found that before large earthquakes, uh, uh, one, two weeks before over the areas of preparation, they're quite unusual phenomena going on, uh, changing the air temperature, humidity. because we're measuring from atmospheric point of view, we see change of atmospheric uh, parameters um, using GPS data uh, and that's actually allow us to collect data o- almost in real time to understand the process is real or this is something related to the weather or different parameters uh, like uh, solar activity or typhoons or, or any atmospheric thing. So that's why you make a decision uh, probably seismic-related or not seismic-related. So Amadeus is a concept which allows to integrate data, to have a decision-making, and to produce a detection of um, anomalies which we are uh, related to preparation uh, of large events.
1: So this is global, correct? Like a global satellite network and, and things? It's not just, um, uh, I guess, localized to uh, specific areas?
2: Yes. We, um, we start doing this locally, and we found that um, earthquakes not happening exactly as we wish. And that's why we uh, put in these measurements over, let's say, 25 uh, areas around the globe, which we are monitoring and trying to understand. Um, because that's the way it is. Uh, using satellite data, we, you can make this kind of analysis globally, and that help us to increase the statistics. If just we wait only for America's uh, we should weld probably for the next 10 years. So that's why we expanded globally to understand better the phenomena in different areas.
1: So have have you tested that? Because I know you said it was the, the concept, but um, have you tested that in your local area to see if it does work?
2: Yes. Um, what we um, started in the beginning, um, well, as we say, usually one... You like to catch a fish? You have to go where the fish are, right? Yeah. So um, we went to Japan. So basically, we work with Japanese scientists. Um, we know the seismic rate in Japan is very high, and this happening after two thousand eleven. Um, that's when we start doing about building this kind of concept, because the biggest um, event, two thousand eleven, March eleven earthquake in Japan, Tohoku, was just. Uh, um, sign for us that what has we've been doing, another scientist doing before, is not working. So, mm-hmm. and um, right, and then we start doing tests um, in Japan. So, um, what we're we doing, just uh, having a, um, um, one year uh, continuous analysis. Um, and for example, we did it in 2012 13, immediately after 2011. We start the first. Um, approach of continuous uh, producing the alerts uh, basis. It's a blind, blind analysis. Uh, we didn't know the earthquake is happening or not, but we see the data is showing some kind of anomalies. And for one year, we are just giving you the numbers, we are looking only for large earthquakes. So the earthquakes more than 5.5,
0: because mm-hmm.
2: that's the way we see the signal stronger compared to the noise. Um, and during that period, we um, issued 27 alerts for the entire period. This only for Japan, mm-hmm. and 51 of those alerts, uh, 60% just uh, was accurate in terms of um, earthquake occur in the area of, of we have been suggesting. So what we did it, we just every time we issue alert, we um, define the area terms of uh, space location, um, time period, about 15 days, and the possible magnitude, and um, 60% of our forecast was right, and 37 just false alarm. So, means that we issue alert, but alert didn't happen uh, in this time frame. So, that's the thing that that may happen later, but we don't consider it as event. So, that is the first approach that we are more than 50%, because 50% is random guessing. So, you don't need to have the science. You can guess without any tools. Right now, it will be not earthquake. So, we're doing fine. Then, we did another analysis uh, so far in Japan, which has much better uh, success. So, we are uh, able to, um, 75% of our alerts were successful. So means that this really, really has a potential for future development, and we believe the science will be improved in many other things like technology. That's the first um, two tests we did it in Japan, and we um, continue doing that, but uh, we like to engage more with Japanese scientists because we need ground data. So only with satellite data, we have limitations because... Um, also, when the testing was just based
1: on the satellite component only.
2: That was the first uh, version of Amadeus that we use in a different satellites because uh, for the ground data we need to bring um, um, our team uh, from Japan, and they need to believe that it's it's worth it. So they believe it now uh, that it's worth it. Now, another thing is very important in Japan that almost all events we observe. Uh, large events happening in the water, not on the land. When we have, um, in Japan, they have a very strong seismic network and very mm-hmm. uh, robust GPS network. So that's one of the advantages of satellite data. That If you're based on the physical phenomena, you also can see some kind of signatures and atmosphere happening over the water, which is a big challenge for seismology because it's, it's in, in the what too far from the from the network so that's giving um um advantage which uh, our friends from in japan actually realize. so now they um uh, we're working together with their data and trying to do some tests and improvements so it's it's uh, um i will say that this is uh, improvement in the model some uh, of those 2.0 it's we bringing a lot of ground data. So that is a big uh, plus for us because it's helping us to reduce the false alarm.
1: So the data that you got during that testing, what did you do with it? Did did it get passed on to anybody or in a real situation? Let's say we are further down the road. What happens with that data that you collect from the ground observation and the satellite observation? Um, What are you going to do or what's the expectation to happen once you have all this data?
2: So um, one of the requirements is we need to have uh, basically a long-term uh, baseline of the data. So we are um, we collecting the data for last, for, for example, with satellite GPS. Uh, with GPS, we have about 10, 15 years. With satellite data, we have uh, 25, 30 years of data over the areas we have been studying. Um, and that's giving a big advantage to understand what is normal versus what is abnormal. So in our analysis, we have two different approaches. Very similar, like weather forecast. That was the beginning of the operational weather forecast. It's named hindcast and uh, forecast. So hindcast is we do um, some assessment um, after the event. So you analyze data after the event, and we are trying to understand where uh, are any abnormal signals are any anomalous enough and we found that um we did this in the beginning that almost uh for all large earthquakes we have anomalous before the earthquake mm-hmm. but we didn't notice that we didn't analyze because technology was not good we didn't know that and you know it's it's kind of historic background but After 2011, the data became more mature. We have a critical period about one or two solar years, I mean 12 years, so that's very important because um, we need to have a good baseline, and solar, earth activity is very uh, sensitive. Uh, Some earth uh, relationship uh, and solar cycle has to do with the weather and changing the many parameters, so we need to be more than 12 years of data. Um, And we're collecting as a database. So we create a large database of different data, ground and satellite, and then we're trying to uh, train our algorithms in in the history, in the past, and then trying to use modification of those algorithms for the future. So that's why we need, you know, um, 10, 20 years of data because uh, earthquakes happening frequently in Japan. So in Japan, mm-hmm. we have every month one uh, of 6.0 approximately. And that's giving us uh, much more chances to um, catch all kind of uh, abnormal signals before the earthquakes because in California, uh, we don't have this kind of seismic rate. So instead of sitting and waiting there, we just using... Global satellite data to practice in Japan together with our colleagues from Japan.
1: So, this is still a few you, you know, to be fully implemented, let's say, and put in place and really uh, to become something really robust. It's still a few years away then.
2: Uh, yes, um, there is a few a few uh, challenges on that. Um, one of the challenge is that we need to show that this kind of approach actually is relevant to in other areas. It's not just unique for um, for Japan. Uh, this number one. Uh, so we need to basically um, uh, start doing tests in other areas like uh, we can do in, we start doing now in Europe over Greece and Italy, we, we found a very good support of that. So uh, the second is, this is the first issue. We need to show this really, really um, is not just unique for Japan. The second is that uh, we need to basically develop a ground segment for different areas with the same instrumentation, which is based on our theory. So in other words, we need to have gas measurements, radon, uh, air conductivity and the ground temperature, which allow us to make decisions which we need it uh, if we do operationally. Number three, um, it's funding. So it's not, it's very heavy labor um, of analysis. So um, that means that we need to convince agencies that we need to show the prototype is working and then we'll get funding to some kind of operational test. And the last uh, four, it's the humans. So this is the most challenge uh, because um, even though we have good results and the really, really potential of this to be used. It's still uh, the most difficult is um, people uh, don't believe that it's 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 might happen. So it's,
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's it takes time. Uh, as I usually say in my. Lecture to the students that uh, Alexander von Humboldt said one very interesting um, thought about 100 years ago that to solve the scientific problem takes 100 years. Really? But to go from science to implementation takes another 100 years. So, in other words, it's not so easy if you solve something like, you know, uh, some science problem to implement into the practice takes a long time and lots of effort to do that so um, that's why i say one two three four maybe we have a ten different obstacles to go but uh, we started so it it takes time
1: well on that note we're going to uh, end our second segment we are talking today with dr dimitar Ozanov and we're talking about earthquakes and their predictability we'll be right back
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Every business wants to succeed. Every individual wants to succeed. But with an ever-changing economy, how can you manage to keep things doing so well, even in times of instability? You can. Tune in to Thriving in Uncertainty with host Meredith Elliott Powell. Meredith and her guest experts have the answers you need to keep you ahead of the changing game in business. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Accept the challenge
5: to succeed. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills.
6: Get a unique and playful insider's take on the biggest stories in tech, media, and entertainment. Join Lori H. Schwartz, well-known technology catalyst, comedian, and geek girl, as she and leading experts in the media and content business dive into the biggest stories in technology trends, consumer behaviors, and its impact on Hollywood. If you're looking to respond to the tech-fueled changes in the marketplace, Then tune in to the Tech Cat Show Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business Channel.
0: You're listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Dr. Dimitar Ozanov, uh, and we're talking about earthquakes and their predictability. Our last segment, uh, Dimitar, you gave some uh, great oversight on what the Amadeus uh, concept is and uh, the predicting of uh, earthquakes. Um, and I know you mentioned that it's going to take some time yet, and obviously some funding, which uh, <laughs> you know, it always ends up being one of the biggest challenges. You know, funding always appears on the list there. Um, during our break, you mentioned uh, a little bit more regarding some of the technologies and uh, other nations, actually, that are doing some things in this area. Do you want to touch base on that and um, up-to-date uh, our listeners on what you were telling me?
2: Yes. Um, I'd like to add uh, very important two things. First, um, um, one of the uh, current solutions it's actually for the alerting for earthquakes. Uh, it's a seismic early warning system, which are built on the ground. And they're giving information for, um, for impending um, waves, seismic waves, to your location after the earthquake occurrence. So that was um, current technology uh, named Seismic Early Warning System. And it's implemented in about 15, 20 different countries coming to California um, this year, operationally, I think. Um, so this is one of the developments uh, we think uh, will be uh, interesting for us to work together. So we're going to have a warning system and prediction system in the future. That's we envision this kind of approach. So I didn't spoke about this, but it's very important. The technology is helping us to um, uh, be informed quickly after the occurrence of earthquake. So that's a warning system. The second technology help we're getting is from satellite. So um, uh, last year, uh, Chinese uh, space agency launched a satellite, uh, which is named Chinese seismic satellite. This is, um, uh, this kind of observation of uh, satellite observation is helping to detect electromagnetic signals in ionosphere, uh, which are related to uh, earthquakes and volcanoes. Before that was a French mission named DEMETER, uh, which also I've been affiliated with. They studied the same phenomena very successfully for five years. And the Chinese colleagues decided to build their own satellite. We are getting data. I'm part of the international team. We're getting data for this satellite. They're just starting producing good data. Uh, This data is um, about the plasma in Mm ionosphere. And before large earthquakes, actually, plasma in ionosphere is changing, because uh, when you have large events on the ground of the Earth's surface, there is a change of conductivity in low atmosphere. And when you change the conductivity of large areas, immediately ionosphere reacts to these kind of changes, and and around 700 kilometers. There is ionospheric layer, which is changing the electron density. And this kind of measurements of the Chinese satellite is measuring this um, change of the plasma electron density and the plasma temperature. It's very helpful because um, what we've been studying, we've been studying as a coupling between the lithosphere and the ionosphere. And it's happening before large earthquakes because these large earthquakes changing uh, lots of properties in atmosphere, in atmosphere and satellites immediately can detect these kind of signals. So in, t- briefly, um, technology is developing, and we are looking for any new satellites that can help us to make the better decision. And currently, this the new Chinese satellite is very helpful because it's going to work for the next three, four years, and then they're going to build a new one. So it will be like a constellation of satellites.
1: It's interesting you mentioned all these different uh, nationalities uh, and nations that are uh, involved here. China, Japan, Italy, Greece, United States, and others. Are there challenges with doing this or trying to get this you know, concept off the ground, considering it is so international? Does politics get in the way or you know, what are some of the challenges that you're encountering? Because obviously what you're doing can offer a lot of benefit for millions of people. So are there some challenges with, with it being so internationally focused?
2: Uh, yes, there are challenges of, with all international work um, because earthquakes, they don't count on the political boundaries. They're happening um, everywhere, and the mm-hmm. boundaries just, just uh, they don't count on that. So it should be a global awareness about this. But when you can do globally, you have to think locally first because um, you have to implement system for your area because people in Canada United States, they're happy to have system in their areas, not just in China, right? So that's why we're working internationally because this is a very challenging problem. There is no single nation can solve that because it's um, two things about earthquakes. It's very rare. It's invisible phenomenon. So you can see typhoon, you can see um, um, basically um, um, hurricanes, you can see um, polar vortex. Uh, it's coming, but you don't see earthquakes. So it's very difficult to convince that it's coming if you don't see it. This, this number one, second, it's very rare. Um, mm-hmm. It's not happening uh, on an annual basis. It's not like weather. Um, and so there is a generation of people, they don't have memories about earthquakes. They don't know how to deal with earthquakes because they never had earthquakes in their uh, lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why it's a problem that it's, there, is a no, cause, um, there is no... because um, there is no strong um, repeatability of these earthquakes. Of course, in Japan... This happening um, every month every day um, I've been in Japan many times and um, I have two occasions when I was there and um, Song good has happened so but this um, Japan is it's a different country they practice they have uh, drills they have uh, in school so they are very much prepare about that so I, I I understand. there is
1: go ahead sorry
2: yeah, that's why I like to say that um, different nations, they have a different expectation for that. They're, uh, different, they're on different level of readiness for the earthquakes. So that's why when you start a global project, sometimes it's difficult to meet the, their expectations. But that's why we like to do tests in different countries. And this, um, we work on Chinese, with uh, Japanese, with Europeans because they see the potential of this analysis and they like to learn how to use it. So we are open gate to the knowledge and we have pretty much cooperation of many scientists for that reason. They look at potential of this methodology to be improved and employed in their region.
1: What I was going to say is um, Japan is well known for having um, high standards with regards to building practices and um, you know, having everything they do, earthquake um, ready, I guess you can you can call it. So, uh, were were they an obvious choice to work with when you got started?
2: Um, actually, I started this research in Japan. I was invited by the Japanese scientists in two thousand to give um, um, a presentation about the NASA satellites. What kind of data could be provided for the for the earthquakes Ooh. and? Since then, I started working because of the Japanese people. They encouraged me to do that, and we have very good relations. There is um, a society, there is a working science group part um, of um, IOGG. Actually, will be a meeting of IOGG in Canada, by the way, in July. Uh, this is uh, International Union of Geology and Geophysics. This is the highest... Uh, class, we named this is the Super Bowl for geophysics. is going to be in <laughs> Montreal um, in July. So, and we have a session. We will be a lot of sessions about earthquake prediction. So, uh, maybe that's another topic for you for for the next for the next uh, for, for next uh, opportunity to talk about this.
1: Well, there you go. Anyone who's attending that conference, or even yourself, Dimitar, get in touch with me, and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> and we'll take the conversation <laughs> further. <laughs> you never know. So, with all of um, uh, the, this uh, prediction, and you, you mentioned you know the se- seismic early warning uh, coming to California, and the things that uh, um, you're working on, uh, you know to um, you know w- with things uh, you know to predict these uh, earthquakes that are coming ahead of time, and you know companies and communities have response plans. With all of this still happening, what do you still see as some of the biggest challenges with regards to, you know, these kinds of disasters?
2: Okay, we have um, many challenges. I will realize that I will select two of those challenges. Uh, one is um, improving the technology and the science behind. So um, just we need to understand that when in mid-70s, for the first time was use um, methodology for operational weather forecast. Uh, in the media, people said it's a waste of money, so weather cannot be forecasted uh, precisely. Now, in 2019, we very much know that that's, it's happening. So it takes time, mm-hmm. money, and lots of effort to go from the beginning into the end. It's number one. Number two is the human impact. So many people, and most of the people working on the emergency, uh, may say that prediction, making prediction of earthquakes, uh, could do more harm than good. And especially really? How if so? the prediction, yeah, if the prediction is not accurate. So yes, because uh, we're not in that um, level. Not decision on forecasting when we can say we'll be 10 in the morning tomorrow and we'll be on this mm. road, 65, and we'll be a magnitude 6.6. But right. uh, we're giving much more um, uh, uncertainty into the forecast. So we, we say the range is a radius, about 100 kilometers, for example. We say the magnitude range between 6 and 6.5. And we can say the time interval between now and next 10 days. Um, that's we started with. And we, of course, we like to, to narrow or, and to be more precise. But today, many people say, and I'm giving a presentation for disaster management um, and first responders, they say, it's a great idea. We like this, but we, leak more, we need more precision. And they are right about that because uh, if you um, make a forecast, alert, let's say, for California and give it 10 days, well, people will say, okay, what I do for 10 days? I mean, just, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Right. Of course, um, um, that's why we need, to, um, we need to precise, we need to improve these kind of uh, decisions. But because it's happening, uh, this kind of approach works in California. Works in um, probably in Canada, works in, in Japan, in China. Uh, every time we need to customize, like weather, weather right. in Canada, of course is different compared to weather in Japan. That's why we're trying to customize our approach for different regions. So that's why it takes time. I consider two different challenges; they are very much connected. So if it's off number one, number two will go away because if we show in our test the really really decision in terms of hours, in terms of special location, in terms of magnitude, that we will really catch immediately the eye. And people say, OK, I like to have this product, because this product really, really shows its work. So it takes time. But again, mm-hmm. uh, earthquakes are happening. And that's why we like to be keep watching and improving, because uh, eventually we're going to uh, improve ourselves up to the level that uh, this forecast with help of others can be um, helpful for the disaster
1: management. Well, and on that note, we've come to the end of our last segment. Uh, Dr. Dimitar, thank you very much for your insight. I thought it was a fantastic paper that you gave in Manila, which is why I wanted to have you here to talk about it. I keep at it because I know the benefits that are going to come from what you're doing is going to help millions and millions of people. So I really congratulate you on your work. Thank you very much for spending your time here and letting us uh, be a part of this.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: My pleasure. And to everyone listening out there, again, if there's any topics you'd like us to talk about, please get in touch. Any advertising, um, again, please be in touch. Check out boastassessment.com. And in the meantime, everybody, stay prepared.